Casey Cardinia Libraries would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We wish to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening. Hello and welcome to a very special mini Casey Cardinia Libraries Book Matters podcast. My name's Tim and we hope you've been enjoying all the interviews, reviews and content from our first three episodes this year. This week we celebrate the announcement of the Miles Franklin Award for 2020. Last month, Sam was lucky enough to chat with Peggy Frew, author of the previous Miles Franklin nominated novel, Hope Farm, about her latest novel, The Islands, which is very much in contention for this year's prize. Phillip Island holds a special place in the hearts of lots of people, and Peggy's work will transport you there regardless of lockdown restrictions. So join us as we chat to Peggy Frew. Frew's first novel, House of Sticks, won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript by an emerging Victorian writer and was shortlisted for the UTS Glenda Adams Prize for New Writing. Hope Farm, her second novel, won the Barbara Jeffries Award, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize and the Miles Franklin Literary Award and longlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award. Her latest novel, Islands, has been longlisted for the Miles Franklin Award for 2020. Welcome to Book Matters, Peggy. Thanks for having me, Sam. <laughs> Congratulations on this great novel and being longlisted for the Miles Franklin again. How does that feel for the second time? Oh, it's surprising. It's, <laughs> um, I suspect that it's something that never stops being surprising because it really is very, I don't know if arbitrary is the right word, but nothing is guaranteed in my experience and also in talking with writers who've been around for longer than I have in the publishing world. Prizes are just very unpredictable, you know, because it, it really is, a, there are a lot of great books being written and published in Australia and it really is just the sort of taste of a specific group of people being the judges and also, you know, how they arrive at a decision, you know, that, that could be a matter of that they all have to compromise because they have to agree. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. it could be that, that the person with the loudest voice in the room gets their way. You know what I mean? I just feel like it's and, – and it's also just such a hard thing to judge because everybody reads books differently, even even people who are very experienced who would be judging prizes. So I would never expect to get anywhere in any prize when I publish a book and so it's such a thrill when you do. And it's also – it's such a thrill but you've also, I've also got to try and keep myself – Grounded. Keep the awareness that it's not the be-all and end-all. Yeah. You know? It's been yeah. a fantastic it's, run, though, for three novels. It's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, could you summarise the story of Islands for our listeners? Oh, my least favourite thing because it's so hard to do. It is. It took me a whole book to <laughs> write it, so I feel like it's really hard to say what it is in a nutshell. I'll give it a shot. So, so Islands, essentially it's the story of a family in which a couple of pretty major things happen and I don't think it's giving anything away because it actually says on the back cover that one of those things that happens to this family is that their daughter Anna goes missing when she's 15. So it's it's a book about a family that's dealing with a major crisis and it's told through different voices and the voices are the voices of the rest of the family. So there's two parents, Helen and John, 
And then there's their daughter, June, or Junie, who's Anna's older sister, who's, so she's a couple of years older. So she would have been, what, 17 when um, Anna goes missing. So we sort of get their perspectives on life before and after Anna going missing. But we also get the voices of other characters who are sort of more on the periphery of the family. And a couple of them are even people that just only have a a fleeting encounter with a member of the family. So it's this sort of mosaic of voices and through those different perspectives, I hope that the reader is able to sort of gather these pieces of information and gradually piece together the story of what happens with Anna, you know, in her um, life leading up to her disappearance and then also what it's like for those people left behind. One of the images that I had in my mind when I was sort of putting the book together and figuring out a structure for it was of a spider web. At the middle of the web, you know how you see those spider webs and they have the hole at the, in the middle, the empty space, and that empty space is Anna, who's just not there anymore. And then all of the strands, the interlinking strands of the web that reach out um, are the, the members of the family who are left behind, the people that are left behind. In Islands, as in all your novels, actually, you seem to explore the other side of relationships. Do you find yourself writing about the spaces between people, the, the cracks between them? I think it's my main interest as a writer. I just can't help it whenever I'm working on something. Relationships is what it always comes down to. I'm just really interested in, I'm interested in relationships and how they change over time, I think. So in Islands, I think we first meet Junie when she's about 12 and by the end of the book, I think she's in her early 40s and she's an adult with children of her own. And so I'm really interested in the ways in which she relate to her parents when she's not yet a teenager, then throughout her teens, then when she's in her 20s and then when she's in her 30s and 40s and how the experiences that she's had affect those relationships because I think they really, they they change dramatically and I think a really big factor in that change is her having a family of her own because I think that nothing changes one's views on parenthood like becoming a parent and I think that when you start to look at a family and look at relationships, if you look, for instance, at the relationship between a daughter and a mother, you will find yourself asking questions about the mother's relationship with her mother, you know, because these things just sort of build through generations and they carry on. So in writing about Junie and her relationship with Helen, I found that that led, of course, to what kind of a childhood did Helen have? What was Helen's mother like? What was Helen's father like? Yeah, very um, much so. And the mother, Junie's other grandmother, that I found yeah. her character really interesting too. Yes, her paternal um, yeah. grandmother, Lois, who was such a um, stern person. And then I, I kind of ended up asking myself, well, how did she end up being like that? And then went back into her childhood and yeah. sort of saw that she was a person who just was never never had op- the opportunities that she um, really could have made use of because she was so intelligent. Yeah, I, re- I really liked her backstory, actually. You seem particularly interested in women and motherhood and how the needs of mothers often conflict with the needs of their children. Could you talk a bit about that? I think it's just what I've always been drawn to in what I've read throughout my whole life. And I think probably that's because I am a daughter and have always felt very interested in my own mother or at least I've had this kind of ongoing kind of almost conversation with myself about my mother through in my own mind throughout my whole life which is 
That's really um, interesting. Might sound a bit weird. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, I understand that. Yeah. She's sort of there in my mind a lot. And I think that that's, that's because of identification. You know, I've always kind of identified with her. And that's not that doesn't necessarily mean that I've wanted to be like her, but I've compared, sorry, maybe identification is the wrong word, but I've compared myself. Then I'm a mother myself as well. And comparing myself as a mother to the way that my mother was. I just find it incredibly fascinating because I, I don't think that anybody is really prepared, ever prepared to raise children. And uh, you sort of have this huge paradigm shift, I think, when you have your own children, if you do, where you suddenly think, oh, my God, my parents didn't really know what they were doing. You know, <laughs> they were, And also that realisation that they also were doing their best, even when it might not have seemed to you like they were doing a particularly good job. I think that's a really big one where you just think it's so hard to get it right. No one's going to get it right. No one's going to be perfect as a parent. But it's so interesting um, because it's so often there is a loss of personhood when you take on that parenthood mantle and that's, I think, what you are often unravelling is that personhood along with parenthood and how the two can go together. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And the the funny thing is that it's also, in my experience anyway, the most incredibly enriching thing I've done in terms of personhood. You know, I, I just feel that it's changed my perspective on the world for the better. And yeah. it's made me a much more tolerant person, a much more selfless person in in a way. And I and less neurotic, all these positives, but then you you lose a lot as well. You know, there's a whole other life that you could have lived and sometimes, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now and I'm just like, oh, I guess I'm never going to move to Paris and you know, do all the things that I might have thought I would have done when I was in my 20s. But, um, yeah, it's funny. I was actually, I'm just reading an amazing book at the moment called An Unnecessary Woman by Rabir Alamadine. It's extraordinary and it's, it references a whole lot of other books and there's a fantastic reference to a Spanish author called Javier, I'm probably going to say this wrong, Marias, I don't know how to say it. It talks about how Marias suggests that his work deals as much with what didn't happen as with what happened. And I find that really interesting that our lives, you know, we, we mostly believe that we are who we are because of the decisions that we made in our lives, but actually we're just as much shaped by the things that we might have done. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside, but I think that's really relevant to that personhood notion because in having children you um or most people sort of consign themselves to a particular way of living and absolutely Uh, the other part that really stuck out for me in islands is what a big part place plays in the book and i loved that all the places you set this book were instantly recognizable for me and you obviously had a connection to the places you wrote about Uh, yeah so i had a relationship with the the island called which is a real place called Phillip Island. Many people, particularly people who live in Victoria, will know as a holiday destination not that far from Melbourne, a couple of hours drive. So just like Junie, I had grandparents who lived on the island and I spent my childhoods there, uh, childhood holiday. (laughs) I've only had one childhood, sadly. And I then, just like Junie, met a man who is my partner who just happened to have a place on the island as as well many years later so I've had this lifelong association with this place but I think it really was my childhood experience of the beaches the kind of scrubby foreshore of the that the particular bayside part of the island that I that I really drew on I think that the way that 
we engage with place as children is so different. It's so rich and pure. That's a terrible word, but there is a kind of purity to it because I think children engage almost absolutely when they're playing with an environment. It's a place that I know and I, when I was sort of casting around after I'd finished Hope, Hope Farm, my second novel, when I was casting around for something to do, I actually remembered this writing that I'd done in my early 20s about the island and I thought, oh, maybe I'm ready to go back to that and go into that world again. Yeah, beautiful. And you, you mentioned just before An Unnecessary Woman, which I will add to my to-read list. What other books do you like to read yourself? I've just always read fiction, books about relationships, books about women in particular. I'm a, an enormous fan of Alice Munro, the Canadian short story yep. writer. Cat, Cat's Eye by yeah. Margaret Atwood is, is a real touchstone for me and I, I reckon I've looked at that uh, every time I've been working on something and I feel a bit lost, I go back to that. Also Helen Garner's fiction. I, I often go back to one of her works of fiction called The Children's Bark. Yeah. which is a sh- very small novel, almost a novella, um, that's about uh, family, sort of familial relationships in, the, in Melbourne in the 1980s. Uh, and in the last few years I've started reading more non-fiction. I'm trying to think. I'm actually very conveniently right next to my book pile here. Perfect. What have I read that I've loved? Leslie Jamison's non-fiction I really like. She's an American author. She wrote, oh, it's kind of relevant to the project that I'm working on now, but she wrote a book called The Recovering about addiction and particularly alcoholism. Could you tell us a bit about what made you want to become um, a writer in your journey to publication? Okay, so I know because my sister actually found, or one of my sisters actually found, a little notebook in which she and I had written what we wanted to be when we were grown ups and in which I said that I wanted to be an author. My sister wanted to be an acrobat and she ha- has not yet achieved that dream, but there's still time. <laughs> there um, is still time. Get her on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I did. I wanted to be an author and I was really keen. You know, I was writing short stories when I was in high school and terrible poetry, terrible short stories and terrible poetry. But everywhere. That's your job as a teenager, I think. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of got sidetracked and ended up writing music. I sort of think that in some ways there was a little bit of a understanding of where I was at on some very you know subliminal level I understood that I didn't really have anything to write about (laughs) yet so I wasn't one of those people who at 18 was like right I'm going to write a novel so I went off and played music for sort of throughout my 20s but I was writing all along and I, I you know I was one of those people that would write long letters and I then when email came I would write these sort of letterish long emails um and I was still tinkering away and I did write, I wrote what I call my practice novel, which had a lot of the kind of seeds for islands were in that. I wrote that during my 20s. But I had no, absolutely no aspirations towards being published. And then when I was in my mid-20s, I think some people I knew were doing a course at RMIT here in Melbourne called Professional Writing and Editing. And I just thought I'd apply and I got into it. And really, to tell the truth, I was supporting myself as a musician by working, you know, menial kind of jobs and I was kind of sick of it. And at that stage I could apply for Study, and I thought, well, maybe I could do this course and I could at least not have to do those jobs or so, so much of it, yeah. so much of that kind of work. So I did that course. It's, it's a course, you know, it's, it's quite vocational so you can do a lot of like 
heading more towards journalism or communications. So I did, I really focused on short story and novel and as part of the short story units that I did in that course, there was a big emphasis on sending out to competitions. You know, the teachers would just say, okay, what we want you to get done by the end of this year is have a handful of stories that you can just send out, keep sending them out, which was just fantastic advice because for me anyway, it really got me used to rejection. Yeah, it hardens your skin, doesn't experience. it? Yeah. And used to the idea that just because one competition or one journal, you know, one competition didn't rate it or one journal didn't want to publish it, it doesn't, you still own it, you know, and you also you can keep working on it, you know, you can change a story and then resubmit it, blah, blah, blah. So I did that and then right at the end of when I was finishing that course, but this, it, it actually took me a really long time. I think it was around seven years that I, I took to finish a two-year diploma because I went very part-time because I was having my children as well. Yeah. I won a short story competition that at that time was run by The Age newspaper. And then I just, the next day I got an email from a publisher and, and I had a manuscript and I did have interest from a publisher, but I also was able to get advice from an agent and I was able to get an agent. Fantastic. And the advice was send that manuscript in for uh, the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Unpublished Manuscript, which it then won that. So I've, prizes and, co- and competitions have really played a big part in my road to publication and I think that publishers really pay attention to them, for better or worse, they do. That actually segues perfectly to my next question, which is what piece of advice would you offer aspiring authors? Enter competitions, but before that, oh, I always feel like such a strict kind of school teacher when I say this. Take your time. It's something I've never been good at, but there might be people that are really fast and have that energy of like the beat poets or something like Jack Kerouac who just smash something out and it's perfect and they don't redraft it and they send it off. But I would say they are very much in the minority and my experience is that good writing takes a really long time. And I often will finish something and think that is finished and I am done with it and but I have to really force myself to put it aside for a long time, like at least a month, and then take it out again and look at it and I'll just see all the glaring, not errors, but the, the areas where it needs more work. You might think that you're ready to send something out to a competition or to, to try and get it published, but chances are it'll need another draft. So I don't think I've shown a manuscript of a novel to even to my agent until I've done, honestly, with Islands, it was probably five or six drafts. I know it's horrible. It's that kind of advice you never want to get because people just want, because you spend so long working on something and then you, you just want, you want to share it. You've been alone with it for all this time. But yeah, it, it give it time and, and have those downtimes, have those periods where you rest it, where you put it away and you don't look at it because you do, you need to come back to it with a fresh eye. Yeah. And then after that, competitions, definitely, that's my advice. Um, Peggy, best of luck with the Miles Franklin Award and thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Sam chatting to Peggy Frew about her new novel, The Islands. You can find a copy of Peggy's work via the library catalogue in hardback, ebook, and e-audio format. Thanks for listening. And don't forget that even with the doors closed, your public libraries are still supporting you. Many, including Casey Cardinia Libraries, are offering free postal delivery of books and resources. Why not check in with your local library website to see how you can get access to those things during this time. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, interviews, and lots of discussion, you can head on over to our Facebook page, In a Nook with a Book. Or if you'd like more podcasts, 
why not head over to the Casey Cardinia Libraries website 